Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this book, we're continuing the book 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty. We're on chapter 4. And if you haven't already, maybe go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast and we keep reading these wonderful books. Now on with the story. Chapter 4 We left Tristan de Cunha, as I have said, after a very pleasant spell on the 27th of January 1908, and our voyage was not very eventful until we had passed the meridian of the Cape of Good Hope on the 15th of February. Then, on the night of the 15th, a gale blew up and we had an ugly sea. From afar came the long, rolling swell of water driven forward by the relentless force of the wind and rising high into peaks and ridges over which our little ship tumbled, staggering first one way and then another, like a horse beaten about the head by a brutal driver. My brother and I shared the watch on deck all that night and all the following day, during which the force of the wind increased and whipped us forward as though we were being chased by fiends. We had the consolation that we could carry canvas and run in a straight course. The little J.B. Charcot was splendid. There was no vice in her. She was not one of those cross-grained, perverse creatures that always have a leeward lurch and struggle at the helm and fall up against the seas like a one-eyed mule splashing the spray to the topsails. Every seaman knows the brand of a beast like that, which makes steering a torture and dirty weather a death trap. Our catch, bless her brave little heart, had been so trimly built by a master of his craft that she rode like a cork, or rather, for that is a helpless and soulless thing, like a beautiful seabird, taking the very ugliest sea with grace and courage and wonderful handiness, as we say, so that the long rollers slipped under her and the wind could never get to grips with her. We had but little freeboard, yet during the height of the storm hardly a bucket of water broke over her. Many a bigger ship would have wallowed and waddled in that gale until it was a bruised and broken thing. But our toy boat, it was hardly more than such in a storm, sped swiftly along with white wings straining and a high spirit. It was a thrilling thing to take the wheel and feel the throb of her heartbeats as she breasted the high seas and to feel how sensitive she was, even in this struggle, to the touch of the helmsman, like a finely bred horse who feels the slightest pressure of the rain. To a passing vessel, or an ocean liner, or a three-master, we should have looked, doubtless, a poor little mouse of a thing, waiting to be drowned. Out there, with no one to see us, we felt in our own hearts, like the old Vikings, who went out into the wind and the unknown seas, without fear or foreboding. I sing the praises of the J.B. Charcot, good luck be with her wherever she goes, but alas, even the best of ships may be tried too hard, and in this storm we did not escape without a shaking. The wind had dropped after twenty hours or so, and had veered round a few points. As every sailor knows, that is the hour of danger. It is what we call an untrue sea, for the wind, changing, brings a swell from a different quarter, while the old sea drives on its way, and meeting the new force, challenges it, provokes it, and churns up the great water into jagged masses and tumbling walls. Long hours after the gale has spent itself, the waves it has raised 
fight their fierce battle in which the current strive with each other for mastery. The officer of the watch keeps his eyes open and counts each third sea which breaks under his bows, and every ninth sea, which is the worst of all, expecting a buffet which may cause his ship to stagger and swoon as though dazed by pain, and perhaps to ship a sea that will make her lose all balance under the awful weight of it and lurch sideways to destruction. So it was with us. I was below when the blow struck us so hard that it seemed to shake the life out of the boat. Things were flying about me on every side. Our cabin was a ruin. There was a terrific noise, as though our timbers were breaking, and before my wits had got straightened out, a thunderbolt, as it seemed, came hurtling down the companionway. It was Jean Bontemps, the boatswain, who had been at the helm and now scrambled into the cabin on all fours. I sprang at him in a passion, inarticulate with rage at what looked for the moment like a sailor's worst treason. You have left the helm, I said. But then I saw that Bontemps' face was bleeding and that he was in a frightful state. I learned afterwards that when the J.B. Charcot had shipped a brutal sea, he had been swept away from the wheel with a violent shock, and after clutching at a mast while the boat heeled over and staggered this way and that like a drunken beast, had been hurled clean down the companionway. But at the time, I waited for no explanation. Realising swiftly something of what had happened, I rushed up on deck and sprang to the helm, steadying our poor trembling ship and wrenching her round from the broadside of the waves. By God's grace, she had escaped a second sea. If, after the first tons of water had come on board and sent her lurching over, she had taken another dose of the same kind, it would have been an end of the J.B. Charcot, and I should not have chronicled adventures in Kerguelen. But terrible damage had been done, and the misfortune robbed us of one member of the crew, who had been a favourite with all of us. The sea did not take toll of human life that day, but poor Patrick was washed overboard. I saw him swimming and struggling in that swollen waste of waters, and I turned sick with pity. We could do nothing to save him. We too should have been drowned if we had lowered a boat, but the loss of Patrick was a tragedy that cast a gloom over us. He had been a brave and cheerful comrade. It was some time before we could reckon up all the damage done by those few moments of destruction, other lives of animals were sacrificed to the wrath of nature, and though we did not have a sentimental regret for them because, poor beasts, they were to be devoured in any case, we were dismayed at the loss of five sheep and three pigs, which we had brought away so gladly from the Isle of Tristan. They also had been washed overboard. One of our sextants was broken, and a serious misfortune our compass had been carried away. Esno's last remaining plates and dishes were smashed into atoms. Even our dinner had gone into the sea, for we had just been preparing for a meal when the water swept on deck and poured through the galley like a mill race. La Rose, who was usually stolid in any crisis, was for once excited by this tragedy in the kitchen. He came to me in a disconsolate way and said, Captain, what are we going to do for a meal? This is terrible, Captain. All our dinner wasted like that. I forget whether I answered him politely. Below deck, we were swamped, and it took us a great deal of hard work to get things shipshape again. I fixed up a smaller compass by the wheel, and Henry and I were very busy in tidying up the cabin. Fortunately, the storm had abated, and although it was not good weather, and the sea was very choppy after the gale, we made fair headway on our course. 
as day followed day and we sailed eastward ho through the great immensity of the Indian Ocean, where no other sail appeared on the far horizon, my brother and I could not keep back a new sensation of anxious hope. Each hour in which the wind drove us on our course, and the small ship, which had been our good and faithful friend, breasted the swelling waters and left behind a silver wake clear-cut for many knots under the surface of that lonely sea, brought us nearer to those barren shores that we had dreamed of for months, and where we should make our dwelling place in loneliness. Often, when I took the watch at night and gazed through the glimmering twilight across the phosphorescent highway, which was our road of adventure, and perhaps, who knew, our way to death, strange thoughts took possession of me and held my soul in the grip of an emotion not to be expressed in words. I knew that we should encounter many dangers. The chart of Kogulian was as familiar to my eyes as the map of Paris, but that chart was vaguely drawn in and pieced together from reports of seamen and sealers who had not gone far around the coast or into the rock-strewn straits of that broken mass of uninhabited islands. We should have to feel our way carefully and make our own soundings. We should have to test and correct and discover the outline of the coast and the position of the reefs and rocks roughly indicated upon that parchment which left so much to the imagination and so much to luck. It was still a no-man's land. Somewhere or other there was a French flag flying, or there stood upon some high promontory a pole from which the French flag had flown, where it had been put up by my compatriot, Lieutenant Kogulian, over a hundred years before, as a sign that the island of desolation and the adjacent islands had been taken possession of in the name of France. But that was only a sentimental conquest. Kogulian himself, setting out from France on a voyage of discovery to settle, one way or another, the dream of philosopher and explorer far back in the ages of the world of a great south land, had seen but little of the place to which he had given his name. On the first expedition, he had not set one foot upon those basalt rocks, for tempestuous seas were breaking upon them, and only through fog and rain clouds on a day of January in the year 1772 did he gaze upon the dim dark land where death lay in wait for any ship that should venture close. But Kogulian's mental vision saw more than his searching eyes, and when he returned to France he told many great tales of that island group, which, as far as he knew, stretched southward to the unknown continent of the Antarctic. French scientists urged him to go back to gather more definite knowledge, and Lieutenant Kogulian made a second expedition, which was more fruitful in actual information of the coastline and the bays. But even now, his chart was but a sketch map which left great gaps and the dotted lines of uncertainty. He had been followed on the southward trail by the great English seaman Captain James Cook, who also had been inspired by the hope of finding the southern continent, which the imagination of many writers had peopled with a white race more civilized than those of the Western world, and had stored with natural riches beyond the dreams of wealth. Cook himself was a sturdy, hard-headed seaman who was not likely to indulge in those brilliant and enticing fantasies, but he had the genius of the explorer and the dogged courage of his race, and he steered his course southward and eastward, searching with far-seeing eyes for any sign of the land. He too sought Kogulian and lay to in its broadest bays and saw the sanctuary of the sea where the whales and the sea elephants swarm in thousands beyond reach at that time of the hunters who on other shores fought these monsters in their own element 
and killed them in vast numbers. Long after Cook came Sir James Ross in 1843, but the coast was too perilous for him to venture to land, and he sailed away again without adding much to the drawing on the chart. Then, in the 70s of the 19th century, the great Challenger expedition had come to Kerguelen, and to those brave men I owed most of my knowledge of the land to which the J.B. Charcot was now flying, with all her canvas set. But when all had been told, Kerguelen was still the island of desolation, uninhabited and to a vast extent unknown. During the past 50 years, other ships had been there. American sealers, following the sea elephants to their furthest hiding place, had put into some of the bays, had made the black rocks run with the blood of their victims, and had gone away without adding a word to the geographical records. They had abandoned it to its own loneliness, for it lay too far off the track of the highways of commerce to tempt men to risk death when seals might be found nearer to the world's great continents. I knew that when we found our first anchorage off the coast of this desolate isle, we should see no human face but those of our few good comrades, that we should get no help from any human hand, that we should find no light to steer the way, no stores to eke out our own dwindling supplies, no footprint to promise companionship in human society. There we six, we little band of brothers, would be thrown absolutely upon our own resources. Upon our own skill as seamen and hunters would depend our safety and lives. Upon our moral strength and endurance would depend our health and our discipline. Upon our cautiousness and vigilance would depend, but not entirely, the fate of the J.B. Charcot and those young men who had volunteered to serve with us on our adventures. I say not entirely, for whatever vigilance, carefulness, courage, endurance and discipline might be ours, we were at the mercy of something greater than any of these, fate or luck. We were sailing into the unknown. We could not anticipate or be forewarned against the dangers lurking there. By good luck, we might avoid a sunken rock or an uncharted reef, but luck is inconstant. One cannot have it always the same way. By bad luck, we might strike upon the rocks before we had set foot upon the land. And what of my men? Could I trust them? Could I be sure that such a boy as Asno, the cook, such lads as Agne and Larose, would prove themselves to be of that stuff which is necessary for explorers on a desert island? I was going to put them to a great test, a test only restricted by the last limit of human endurance. For more than a year, they must stand by me in fair weather and foul, through days of ceaseless labour, in hardships worse than any they had known, in journeyings over grim and dreadful mountains where there would be none of the comforts of life, none of those compensations which men balance against their toil, they were to go hunting with me. Upon their bravery and the toughness of their hearts, our larder would depend. If they were faint-hearted, or if their strength gave way, we should starve and die. In that eternal loneliness, cut off from all society and amusement and human variety, the minds of these young men would be put to a trial of strength with those devils of melancholia and madness which tempt to murder or suicide men who are very much alone in the wild places of the world. I could not ignore all these possibilities. The lives of the crew of the J.B. Charcot were in my keeping. Upon my shoulders and those of my brother Henry would rest any tragedy that might befall them. 
but I harboured no fears and was shaken by no forebodings of tragic happenings. At least I would not allow myself to entertain those little devils of doubt which poke their ugly faces into the brain of a man who is facing the mystery of the unknown. After all, I had spent nearly six months already with my boys, and never once had they failed me in an hour of danger. Never once had they shirked their work. Never once had they shown a sign of fear or faint-heartedness. They were of good stuff. I could put my faith in them. One can go a long way with willing hearts. So, as I neared the island of desolation, I was eager to start this new life of wandering about its coasts and of exploring its country, and all the time I dwelt upon the thought of our seal hunting. That must be our chief business. I must get many tons of seal oil in order to pay my men when they reach their last port. If bad luck went with us on our hunting trips, if the seals had fled to other haunts, if we did not get the trick of capturing them, if their strength should be too much for us, there would be no joy in getting to Melbourne, for I should be worse than a shipwrecked mariner. I should be a bankrupt master, and my faithful servants would go unpaid, and their reproaches would cut me to the heart. Such, then, were the emotions with which I drew near to the great goal of our hope and ambition, and I trust my readers will pardon such reminiscences from a seaman who, in spite of his youth and high spirits, I may claim to have had both those good qualities, had also his very serious moments when he thought of his burden of responsibility. Our first sight of land was when, towards nightfall on the 4th of March, we saw, through the hazy twilight, the mountain peak of Croy Island, the most westerly of a group of volcanic rocks called the Cloudy Islands. It was our intention to make for Christmas Island on the northeast of Kogulian. Out in those seas, with sudden gales and uncharted channels, one cannot keep to time and hold on a course with the regularity of a cross-channel steam packet. We were to fight our way a long way round before reaching the anchorage. We fell at once into dirty weather. Fierce gusts were blowing, and we were alarmed at the thought of getting into a channel between the islands which, according to our chart, were rocky and dangerous. We therefore stood out further and tacked northward and eastward. At seven o'clock that evening we lay to for the night, while all around us there was the strange and ominous noise of bubbling waters and the sullen booming of the wind. At 4am we got to the mouth of Bly's Cap, discovered by that good seaman who was with Captain Cook in the Resolution and afterwards in the infamous mutiny of the Bounty. Here we were enveloped in a thick fog, through which we could see no trace of land, though Henry and I gazed into the sea mist with strained and anxious eyes, knowing that it was a deadly peril to go drifting like this near to unknown rocks. Later in the day, we crept southwards, and through the grey haze saw land on our starboard bow, which we knew by our observations to be Roland Island. We were very close to it, but we did not know which way the current was drifting, and we were in fear of being lodged on one of the rocky shelves. Fortunately, we saw a small bay on the east coast not marked on the chart, which gives a very indefinite outline of the island and is just dotted in, in the vaguest and most inaccurate way. Henry decided to try to get anchorage in this bay, but there was a heavy swell on, though the wind was dropping, and presently the Charcot lay becalmed. Not a breath of wind could we whistle up to carry our little ship into harbour, and with the current running swiftly, there was trouble ahead. Henry and I decided to lower our biggest whaling boat and to tow the J.B. Charcot to safe waters. 
four of us took to the oars, and with a rope to the bows of our ship, we pulled our hardest. It was tough work, but inch by inch, we struggled along and got into the water of the bay, where there was good shelter. Here we found ten fathoms of water and heaved the anchor, but it was a sandy bottom and by no means an ideal anchorage. It was then the 6th of March, and on the following day I landed and, taking Asno, the cook with some provisions and a gun over my shoulder, set out to climb the high peak of the island. It was my first expedition on land in the Kogulian group, and for the first time I trod those rugged basalt rocks which rise in tumbled masses of black and barren ledges and ridges and plateau, as though great giants had been at play, hurling huge boulders about. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.